Hello and welcome to another episode of India on Cricket 8, your number one podcast for all things Indian cricket related. As always, I'm your host, Nikesh Raghani, sports broadcaster and journalist, and alongside me, my co-host, sports presenter, Mega Sinha from Delhi. Mega, another week, another test win for India, and with it, a 17th consecutive home series win in test cricket for Rohit Sharma's side as well. Let's get straight into it then. Your initial thoughts on that victory in Ranchi? Absolutely elated as an Indian cricket supporter, more so because of how tough it was for India. Again, this game too, for the first time in the series, we saw India conceding the lead. And then there was a situation where at 177 for 7, it looked like that lead would be huge. But then in step Dhruv Jarel. And uh, obviously at that point when he came in, it was 161 for 5. Subsequently, India went on to lose another two quick wickets. But then that stand with Kuldeep Yadav of 76 and then 40 with Akash Deep Singh. Uh, Akash Deep rather. So all of those performances, small gritty performances, they make this win particularly heartening. And then of course in the... Second innings, how India managed to dismiss England and then uh, their target as well. It was just, it wasn't that much because it was under 200. But India's record chasing fourth innings performances, all of that contributed to the drama suspense. And uh, obviously, Hartley and Bashir too contributed in adding to the drama. But eventually, all's well that ends well. And 3-1, it feels so sweet. More so after the first test. In fact, we had the discussion after the first test as well. Did you expect, did you anticipate that the remaining three tests would unfold in such a manner? Of course, because I predicted 4-1 at the start of the series. So it had to be, didn't it? You lose the first one, you got to win the next four. So I knew it was always going to happen anyway. But look, England batted first, which is a big thing in test cricket in India, of course. Winning that task, making the best use of the conditions when the pitch is supposedly the best for batting on. I mean, it wasn't quite like that on that first morning, was it? In- England ended up making 353. Joe Root, fantastic, 122 not out, back to his best and, you know, just playing proper cricket rather than trying these reverse laps and, and things like that early on in his innings. Akash Deep, though, put a bit of a, a spanner in the works for England early on. Three early wickets. Uh, could, could have had Zach Crawley a little bit earlier had he not bowled that no ball, of course, but ended up getting his man in the end anyway. Three wickets, I mean, fantastic morning for him first and foremost, but a good recovery as well from England after losing those three wickets on what was essentially a pretty difficult pitch to bat on given what Akash Deep and, and others were doing early on. Absolutely. That low bounce uh, and that obviously became more of a concern as we progressed through the test match. And that's something we get to see in the eastern part of the country. Obviously, there were sweeps and reverse sweeps that we saw in their full glory in the first three tests. But they were more difficult to play on this wicket, particularly when the ball was in the line of stumps. And also, cross-battered shots, you couldn't always use them. You had to use them sparingly. And that was something that was on display in Dhruv Jarel's batting. Uh, Joe Root as well, early on, got his eye in, understood the wicket and played according to the demands of the situation. Obviously, we'd come to that. What is the correct approach for Joe Root even in this basketball era? A lot of debates have happened on the topic. But as far as India is concerned, how important were those knocks from Yashasvi early on and uh, again later on in the first innings itself from Dhruv Jarel and that partnership of 76, rather 72, I think, uh, between uh, Shubman Gill and uh, Dhruv Jarel as India were chasing that target under 200. So all of those knocks, they were obviously an example of how to approach the wicket. And uh, 
India had at least some youngsters stepping up because eventually that proved to be the difference. But then overall, obviously the conversation at some point would veer towards this when you're talking about this test, the debutants in the series and how they've managed to impress you. Yeah, I mean, look, let's let's go to that first innings. And, and in particular, India slumping to 177 for seven. Of course, Yashasvi Jaiswal isn't a debutant, but he's, you know, one of these young yeah. players who's in a fairly new role at the top of the order in this test side. Uh, you know, another 73. He looks so assured, just looks like he belongs at this level. And, you know, I've talked before about speaking to him a year ago before he played for India and just how well-spoken he he's always been really whenever he's given interviews over the last two or three years, how his focus is, you know, on becoming the best batter that, that in, in Indian conditions in India, you know, going overseas will be his next target. Of course, he's got all these different targets in his head of what he wants to achieve in the game. And he seems to be everything in his stride. So again, fantastic uh, from Jaiswal at the top of the order, but then, you know, slumping, through that score, England have got those runs on the board, 350, 377 for seven. You're thinking, well, here we go again. England's young spinners, you know, two debutants, Bashir with the five wickets in that first innings, Hartley with three as well. Indian fans will be thinking, should we be giving our wickets away to these guys? But it's credit to the way that these guys have bowled and have sort of just kept on the money, really. Bashir just puts it on that spot, doesn't he? Does a little bit with it, with the turn and the odd one that goes straight on and doesn't really vary things too much, just frustrates the batters, makes it difficult to score first and foremost, and then those subtle variations coming into it and, and helping him take those five wickets. Um, but you're right, Drew Jarrell, 90 in that first innings, unlucky to miss out on his ton, of course. Um, but again, another brilliant find, because before the start of the series, who, who was talking about Jarrell, a potential first choice in this side. Maybe one or two who'd seen him in first-class cricket, but generally you think Rishabh Bunt's missing, Gaius Bhatt mm-hmm. comes in, right? That's just just the way it works. And, you know, with Rishabh Bunt out for the foreseeable future, they needed to really find somebody who could not just replace him behind the stumps, but also score some runs, which Gaius Bhatt wasn't doing. Jarrell's come in. He's taken a man of the match in his first match. 90 in that first innings, crucial knock in the second as well. Helped largely by Kuldeep Yadav with that 28. Yeah. He stuck around for a long time in that first innings. And then, look, they, they got to 307 eventually. There were some umpires' calls, though, in that innings. I want to I just get your thoughts on that as well, because that's been a bit of a controversial talking yeah. point, not just in this series, but over the last couple of years in all Test cricket. India on the wrong end of some umpires' calls, um, in, you know, when, when DRS decisions were sent upstairs and you know, the umpires had given it out on field and it was just flicking the edge of leg stump and things like that. Had they not been given out on field, then they would have been not out. I think there were four that went against in that first innings. I mean, that can prove to be crucial. I know we talk about swings and roundabouts in cricket, but to have four in an innings like that is is pretty significant. What are your thoughts on the umpire's call? Should it remain? Should it be taken out of the game? I mean, technology is not 100% accurate. And it's based on a prediction of where the ball's going to go. So given all that, where do you stand? It's pretty interesting how people advocating for or against have both been very passionate. Both have had, uh, obviously, valuable points to add to the discourse. But the discourse has been going on for a couple of years and the umpire's call has remained. So we saw, obviously, Ben Stokes also lamenting over it after the third test, but then benefiting from it in the fourth test. 
and the stands obviously would as far as the players are concerned because they're directly benefiting or not benefiting out of it you'd see them changing their stance because uh, again because the unpredictability of the situation because of that it's very difficult uh, uh, to stick to your guns once you've made a statement i would be interested in hearing what ben stokes has to say on the subject considering his rants after the third test as far as i'm concerned we've seen in case of lot of catches as well and i'm slightly diverting from the subject over here we see uh, that real time that first glimpse that you get there are occasions despite the development in the technological advancements and all of that all that notwithstanding that first look that you get it plays a significant role in you eventually arriving at a decision that first impression so a lot of catches that are really quick in those cases the umpire on the field whatever with his naked eye has observed there are cases of that being correct there has to be in case of in situations which are dicey you have to tilt in one direction or the other so umpire's call is just facilitating that how do we imagine a world without umpire's call i'm almost talking about how do we imagine a world without oceans <laughs> or fresh water sources but i mean what's your take on it look it's it's there for a reason because as i say the technology is not 100% correct so the hawkeye technology yes it's accurate up until supposedly when the ball pitches um but then based on you know how far there is between the pad and and the stumps it's it's a prediction at the end of the day and sometimes you know the ball hits the pad immediately after pitching so how do you quite know the trajectory of the ball especially when a spinner's bowling you know that that degree of turn there there is a little bit of a, a margin of error and i suppose that's why the umpire's call has been left there um i think the confusing thing now is for people who and not just cricket fans but maybe casual cricket fans who watch other sports like tennis so you see in tennis at all the major tournaments they've got the same hawkeye technology i know it's not a prediction because it's actually where the ball is gone and if it's in or out uh, those decisions are very black and white you look at rugby union it's generally black and white football let's not go there because it's a complete mess at the moment with var and all their technology and the various things that they do but you know based on the the i suppose the most similar thing that is in football that is in cricket is is the goal line technology because it's about lines and you know matter of fact and that's pretty accurate as well so it's with those kind of decisions it's either it's out or it's it's not out and then when you're trying to get new people watching cricket and you know when they're watching t20 or they're watching ipl or the 100 or whatever it might be they're going to come across this umpire's call thing and it's going to be like well hang on a minute what does that mean and then you've got to explain that to them and it's just making cricket a little bit more complicated than perhaps it needs to be so i mean whether it goes one way or another it's fine but if it needs clear direction i think from the icc to either come out and say we're going to stick with this because of x y and z mm. and everybody deal with it just stop talking about it if you talk about it you know too much and you know talk about the controversy around it and whatever we're going to consider that as you know ill discipline and i suppose speaking out against umpires in a way because you know it's, it's third umpire makes these decisions and it's and you you could be at risk of getting demerit points and things like that or they say right we're going to get rid of umpires call the technology isn't 100% but we're going to completely get rid of it and if it's flicking the stumps it's out if it's hitting the middle of the stumps it's out it's all the same so they need to give a bit of clear direction on it at the moment because 
that's the thing. Fans are in the dark. Players are in the dark. What's going to happen? Is technology going to evolve? Are we going to continue with umpires' call? Are we not? You know, nobody quite knows. Everybody's got their opinion on it. It needs the ICC to come out and say, right, this is what's going to happen. Everybody deal with it. I mm. think that's, that's mention- probably the fairest way forward. Hmm. Technology obviously cannot be 100% relied, like you yourself mentioned. And the number of uh, variables that come into picture as far as the sport of cricket is concerned, because even the surface where the players are, uh, the, that we call pitch, where the players are playing, it's not even. Uh, there are cracks uh, at some point. There are even bigger cracks at some other point. And what happens when the ball pitches there at a certain angle, how it moves. So all of that, the DRS does not factor in. So maybe the human intervention angle becomes assumes even greater importance in that case. Now, as an umpire standing there, when he's giving his call, uh, he's whatever he's registered based on that, he's arriving at a decision. He doesn't get those replays. There's no benefit uh, of replays there. So it's purely instinctive. There as well, uh, a lot of the variables cannot be factored in because of how quick the decision has to be made. So either of the scenarios, uh, there are discrepancies. But eventually, uh, uh, people cannot be asked to shut up. You'd see they are anyway going to talk about things. And even if the umpire's call gets crapped, you'd still hear the conversations around uh, unless it gets replaced by something better. And I, at the moment, cannot visualize what that better could be. The conversations would continue with comparisons in this case. There, there has been a bit of a call in recent times to have specialist third umpires as well. So I noticed that, look, we're talking a few hours after India wrapped up victory on day four as we record this. And in today's play, there was a decision from Joel Wilson, which it went upstairs. It was an LBW decision. He had judged, I can't remember who the batter was, that there was a fine edge because there was a tiny little spike. And, you know, it might have been a fair enough decision, I think, at the time, but... he, I don't think he went through it enough back and forth. So it could have been bat hitting pad, which caused that spike because there was a tiny little gap to the naked eye between the bat and the ball at the time when the spike was. So a little bit more sense in terms of all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if, if umpires would, they'd surely need specialist training on being a specialist third umpire if that was a role that was created. And then he got loads of praise from the um, the commentary team as well, saying Joel Wilson is on fire this test match. He's got so many things right. I mean, look, Joel Wilson's rarely on fire, whether he's out in the field or in the third umpire's box. It's, it's just matter of fact, he's got quite a few things wrong in recent times. And this one, I'm not saying he got completely wrong, but he perhaps didn't check as much as he should have done, just to be absolutely clear that there was an inside edge because there was a lot of doubt there and he gave the decision pretty quickly. Um, so, you know, Paul, that you're referring to Rohit Sharma's dismissal. Uh, not the dismissal. No, it was one that was given not out. Okay. So it was because he had judged there was an inside edge. So it wasn't the actual dismissal. It was, um, it was one where the batter survived essentially, but there was enough evidence in that first replay and that first, uh, ultra edge Um, graphic that came up on the screen to suggest well hang on a minute there's a bit of a gap so let's just rock and roll it let's zoom into bat against pad or you know various different things I mean look specialist third umpires it could be a thing right going in the future because at the moment they just rotate they have you know three or four umpires through a series and you know the three main umpires will rotate and they'll have a reserve 
is usually a local umpire just standing by in case of emergency. If they were to have a specialist third umpire role created, do you think that would perhaps get rid of some of this? That's a very interesting observation because uh, uh, the on-field umpires, they are trained for a different skill set. And they've gone through the rigors of standing for first-class games, even before that club matches. So all their experience that they've accumulated over the years is for a certain thing. And that is standing on the field or making those quick decisions, sharpening their reflexes and reading of the game. But in this case, the role that a third umpire plays is very different. It's about using the technology to its optimum, arriving on a decision based on that. So fair enough. But again, um, uh, at what level of specialization are we talking? Are we having this conversation? So uh, do you see their roles, even after that specialist position has been established, do you see these roles being swapped over a period of a test match or over a period of a series? Or do you want them to be absolutely dedicated, trained from the beginning to perform the role as a third umpire? Yeah, it, it would have to be that. It would have to be the latter. That That is the specialized role. That is your role. That's what you're trained to do. You're not trained to stand on field. You may well have stood on field previously, and, and it yeah. could be current umpires who do stand on field who are then trained up to be third umpires should they wish to do so. And, you know, that, that would then be their role, that they'd be a specialist third umpire. They would no longer stand on field, but they'd work with the television companies, with the technology companies to better understand the technology as well, because I think there's a massive gap there in that knowledge. You know, you're a third umpire. Yes, you kind of know how Ultra Edge works. You see a spike, you know, things like that. But if you speak to the people behind the technology, you might get some better idea of what can also cause those spikes as well as bat on ball especially if there's a little bit of a gap on yeah. on the picture that we saw. So just these little things, I, I think there's there's a massive gap in that knowledge between the current third umpires and mm. you know what the technology is and, and what it actually offers and, and the little discrepancies, I suppose, that can come along. Um, but look, anyway, we'll leave that to the experts, shall we? The, the ICC can, uh, you know, hopefully get something clear and concrete moving forward, whether it's getting rid of umpires call, training up specialist umpires. You know, we've had our say, but let's let's get back to the cricket. England then taking that first innings lead, a small lead albeit, and then in their second innings, look, they come out as they always come out, but they did lose a couple of early wickets. Then they made it to 110 for three. Yeah. And eventually 145 all out. I mean, this is, look, if... I live in England, of course. I'm born and bred here and I've watched a lot of English cricket over the years and the English batting collapse is is a bit of a tradition. It's like, you know, it comes around more often than Christmas. It comes, you know, it's just, it happens at least five, six, seven times a year in test cricket where they have this almighty collapse. It yeah. seems to happen pretty often these days despite baseball coming in and despite this new era of English cricket they're still susceptible to a batting collapse. And they had one again, 110 for three, 145 all out. Ashwin, five for 51. Guldeep, four for 22. And, you know, it's just, this is how test cricket is meant to be in India, right? Ashwin taking loads of wickets, the spinners taking the majority of them, nine out of the 10, and the opposition collapsing. That's that's exactly what happened. And Ashwin, interestingly, in that innings, opened the bowling. Yeah. I've been crying out for him to do that more often in this series. He hasn't so far, but then in this innings, it showed exactly why he is a brilliant new ball bowler in these conditions. 
And the numbers obviously attest to the statement that you're making an average under 20 when opening the bowling. And he's got over 160 wickets doing that. Uh, obviously, the reason uh, why those numbers read so well is he gets to open only when the conditions are conducive. And when the conditions are conducive, Ravi Chandran Ashwin is sure to make the most out of it. Uh, this series, first three tests, obviously couldn't give as good an account of himself as he would have himself liked. So uh, those five wickets in the in the second innings became ever more important from Ashwin's point of view. But again, looking at the collapse, Ben Stokes is not going to blame his batters because he attributed it to the conditions, how difficult they were, the ball keeping low and then uh, even lower as the game progressed. So it was tricky. And uh, as he himself admitted that the skill sets to be ready, to be armed with those skill sets to handle such scenarios is something that England obviously have not mastered because they're not exposed to such conditions uh, pretty frequently. But then just credit to how well initially Ravi Chandan Ashwin bowled and also Kuldeep Yadav who was brought in pretty late. He's been under bowled in the series and again 25th over was when he was introduced and after that he picked up those four quick wickets that eventually ensured that uh, England couldn't set the sort of target they would have wanted to. And again, there's another point that I'd like to add. Uh, be it Rajkot or any other wicket in India. You can't, uh, even if you've gotten off to a good start, even if you've stitched a big stand, you can never get complacent. And that's why at the end of the second day in the previous test at Rajkot, even when England looked to be coasting at 207 for two, India were assured, India knew that if there's a collapse and that's something that they can inflict on England, things would be back in their control. And that's what eventually happened. That's how it transpired. So, and that has been the theme, underlying theme of the series, that we've seen England get to positions where, from where it looked they'd go on to dominate, but India have crawled their way back. And that was evident even when India were batting, because again, 177 for 7, 353 is what England had scored. And uh, considering what we've seen in the past, Indian wicketkeeper, we had Bharat KS Bharat, who couldn't manage much, couldn't really contribute much with the bat. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, such innings where India... Indian low order couldn't muster much, couldn't contribute with the Lord. But in this case, of course, uh, chipping in with valuable stance and India eventually just falling short by 43 runs. So all of that did play a huge role and um, England probably didn't capitalise on those moments. But from your point of view, looking at England's batting under the conditions, in terms of approach, Joe Root obviously altered his approach. But with regards to the others, do you think they got too carried away? Like in the previous test, just wanting to prove that there's a template that we want to follow. We're going to stick to it regardless of the conditions. Or did you see a change in the approach? There was a little bit of a change in mindset. You could see that on day one, couldn't you? But it, it obviously does sometimes alter your mindset when you've already played three test matches in those conditions. And you know that you've made mistakes along the way with certain shot selection and things like that. And also then losing three quick wickets in your first innings like that, judging that it's a difficult pitch to bat on and, you know, just sort of go, not going into your shell a little bit more, but just playing a bit more sensibly. So there was a little bit of that on day one, certainly as far as England are concerned. I mean, look, Joe Root scores pretty yeah. swiftly anyway by anyone's standards across the history of Test cricket without trying to play all these fancy shots. So he, he's an accumulator of runs. He's one of those guys who... You know, he could be out there for an hour. You don't feel like he's done much, but he's already 40 not out. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, he's yeah. that kind of batter. He just accumulates those late cuts. He'll get his ones and twos regularly. 
and then he'll hit the odd boundary and, and all of a sudden you look up at the scoreboard and you think, wow, has he got that many already? So he doesn't really need to do that. As far as the others are concerned, look, you saw Zach Crawley taking a much more cautious approach in the first innings than he usually would do. Um, but there are others. Look, Johnny Bairstow felt it feels like maybe not quite last chance saloon. Mm. But you look at somebody like Johnny Bairstow, he's played 99 test matches. Yeah. And out of players who have played that many test matches for England, he has got the, as a batter, this is, as a pure batter, this is not. I mean, there are some wicket keepers in the list as well, but as a pure batter, because he doesn't keep anymore and, yeah. and hasn't kept in that many of his tests, he's got the lowest average of, of anybody who's ever played that many test matches for England. So he keeps getting a lot of chances. There's a lot of potential there, of course. He's got a brilliant white ball record across both ODIs and T20s. When it comes to test cricket, and particularly now, he's just not in great form. He's not really been particularly consistent over a long period of time. And he looks like a man who's really struggling out there. First innings, yes, it came off for him to an extent, that 38, and it was pretty quick. It was better than a runner ball. And he hit some good shots in that. It thought You kind of got the feeling that he's come out there with a point to prove and he's just going to try and play his one-day style, his T20 style. He's not going to think about too much. He's just going to try and attack and go extra baseball even. <laughs> it didn't work out in terms of getting a massive score, but you felt that might have been the kickstart he needed. But again, in the second innings, a couple of those shots, yes, and then again fell cheaply. Again, just judging by his body language, the expression on his face, look, he's a bit of a grumpy bugger at the best of times. He's not, he's not one of these smiley characters um, like a Jasprit Bumrah, for example, or somebody like that. But he's—he just—you can tell that the life is almost being drained out of him as a Test cricketer at the moment. So that's a massive problem, I think. That middle order, and had Harry Harry Brook been available, then Johnny Besto perhaps wouldn't have played the first four matches of this series. But it's a big question mark for England. Do they bring in Dan Lawrence for the fifth Test? Give him a chance. He can bowl a little bit as well. The series is lost now anyway, so you're kind of looking to the future a little bit in terms of how you want that middle order to look going forward. And is Johnny Bairstow still part of your plans? If he is, play him, but I don't necessarily think he will be. Um, certainly not first choice anyway, so it's, it's worth trying out somebody like a Dan Lawrence. But look, overall, England's approach is always going to be like that under the captaincy of Ben Stokes. Yeah. Their overall mantra is attack. And if the other team sets us 500, we'll try and get it in the final innings. It's probably not going to happen very often, um, but they'll give it a good go. And I think, look, credit to England, right? How many teams have yeah. come to India and competed like this? And all right, it's 3-1. You look on paper, you think, all right, India dominated the series. It hasn't quite been like that. India have won the big moments through three of these test matches that they've won. They've won the big moments in these test yeah. matches. England have been in winning positions mm. in pretty much all of them at certain points. They've been in very strong positions in all of them. So, you know, one or two little things go England's favour and all of a sudden you could be talking about 3-1 to England. Yeah. So huge credit for them for coming to India with Shoaib Bashir, yeah. Tom Hartley, Rehan Ahmed, who's not playing in this match but has mm. been playing previously, and, you know, really inexperienced what the one test match between the three of them going into this series, right? They had Jack Leach, of course, available at the start of the series. He's not playing, so he's a massive miss for them as well. But despite that, in these conditions, they've competed and competed well. I think the last side that really did this and 
you know, the, probably the most exciting series, the closest series that I can remember in recent times in this unbeaten run of India's was probably Australia 2017. Yeah. The to India, that was pretty tasty and, and pretty well fought and quite evenly matched those two sides were. This is probably the closest to that that I can remember. And we're going back to 2012 since the last yeah. time India lost a test series at home. That was to England, of course. And it's just been a, a non-stop procession since just India just keep racking up these test series victories. They've done it again, but it's not been easy. And I think hats off to England for that. And they didn't make it easy in the final innings either, did they? I mean, some of that might have been India's doing, but 192, never easy to chase on a deteriorating pitch in the fourth innings of a test match in India. Off to a great start, 84 without loss, then 120 for five. You're thinking, yeah. well, England are back in it. How, how were you feeling at that point? Did you have a lot of deja vu of some of the the atrocities of the past? You see, I think I wasn't the only one carrying that baggage of deja vu. The Indian uh, team management too looked extremely concerned because uh, something very similar had unfolded in the first test as well. India got off to a decent start. They were chasing under 300. So obviously, fourth innings in India is always going to be tricky. But then... Uh, when the number is above 200, it becomes trickier. So, obviously, the comparison is not entirely fair. But in this case as well, those quick wickets, and again, after the lunch break, uh, when uh, they were, we saw how effective Shreya Bashir looked and the wicket wasn't going to get any better. And uh, Deja Vu also because of how, uh, when the pressure is on, how Indian batters fare. So, all of that combined, and uh, one, uh, as an Indian fan, was tensed. But eventually, Dhruv Jurel, the sort of composure he showed under pressure, that kind of helped Ali a lot of fears and with Shubman Gill around as well. That was extremely important because these two were quality batters and there was not, uh, I mean, not too long from there, the tail would have been exposed and things would have looked very different. You can't expect your tail-enders to bat under pressure and to win matches for your country with the bat. Uh, I would like to add a couple of points to the conversation that we were having earlier about debutants and their performances. Shoaib Bashir as well. Obviously, the the note on which the series started for him was uh, kind of tricky. And then uh, got to witness the only England win of the series thus far because he arrived on the fourth day. Subsequently, got a look in in the second game. Wasn't that effective, but there was always this conversation about him being tall and the sort of bounce he's able to extract. So all of that working in his advantage. And that was the reason why, despite so little first-class experience, he was brought in. And similarly, in case of Dhruv Jurel as well, when he got that India A cap, before that he had just played 12 first-class matches. And similarly in the IPL, before again he got that look-in for Rajasthan Royals in the IPL, he had barely played T20s, around less than 10 T20s and uh, 3 to be precise, I think. And 23, a run of ball 23 being his best score. But then uh, there are some people who like the limelight, who perform the best when the pressure is on them. And that was something that we got to see in the IPL as well. Like you mentioned, not a lot of people knew about him and that's because he doesn't have a lot of experience at the first-class level, at the domestic level across formats. But in the IPL as well, managed to impress and then was primarily used as an impact player by the Rajasthan Royals. But then to imagine him as an impact player in IPL and to imagine him as a test batter who knew when to defend, when to unleash his attacking strokes, that was very special. And just that assurance in that partnership because once these two came together for that six-wicket stand of 72, uh, and once they got their eye in, it looked like things were in control. But like you mentioned, those two quick wickets after the lunch, and before that as well, those three quick wickets after that stand of 84, 
that did get Indian fans worried. But somebody sitting in England, uh, in London, what were your thoughts as the game was unfolding, the manner in which it did unfold? Well, look, it's you do have deja vu. And you mentioned looking at the dressing room. I mean, Rahul Dravid, he's, he would have been thinking, oh my God, because he was involved in so many of those teams which got themselves into these winning positions. And then fourth innings, there was that collapse. And especially in the late 90s and the early 2000s. If you recall, his 100th test match back in 2005, I reckon, five or six, something very similar unfolded. West Indies, was it? England. England. 100 test matches. Yes, like yes, know. yes. No, I do. I yeah, I I remember that two thousand and five. Yeah. I mean, look, he's he's been there. He's done it. I mean, he he could probably have all these nightmares of nineteen ninety nine against Pakistan in in Chennai with Sachin, you know, looking so good, and then all of a sudden just losing all those wickets out of nowhere to Sakhalin Mushtaq and Pakistan go and wrap up that victory. There was, you know, the MS Tony sides of the past, even going beyond Dravid's era. You know, I remember a couple of incidents in the West Indies where. They didn't even really go for the chase. They were chasing like 200 yeah. or less than 200 on a couple of occasions. Yeah. They weren't really going for it. They were looking to play out a draw and yeah. then they end up getting bowled out. So there was so many similar instances over recent memory and going back 20, 25 years that would have haunted so many Indian fans. So you're kind of fearing the worst, but given the way Drew Jarrell played in that first innings, there was that confidence in me, certainly, that, look, we've got a proper batter here. All he needs to do is stick around for a bit, get 20 or 30, and the job's done, right? Pretty much. And even if it's not, even if he falls then, mm. most of the job will be done. You've still got Ashwin to come. You've mm. still got Guldeep to come, who you know showed a lot of improvement with his batting, especially in that first innings with that 28. Even coming in as night watchman in the previous test, mm. you know, scored some decent, valuable runs there as well. So enough. There was enough there. But you, you've always got that little bit of fear, the way England were just running through that middle order. So nervy, but we like a nervy finish. We like a nervy chase in a test match. And India getting over the line and getting over the line as well without... This is another home series win. We talk about yeah. 17 home series wins. There's not often they would have done it without three world-class players who have been unavailable through the entire series. So Virat Kohli, Mohamed Shami, Rishabh Bunt. And then two who, you know, one of them's not been playing for the last two test matches in Kale Rahul. And then Bumrah was rested for this one, who's been so crucial in the first part of the series for India as well. It's it's amazing just to see the strength and depth that India have got. The fact that Guldeep's now a proper frontline spinner when, you know, three or four years ago, he was sort of cast to the side a little bit. He lost his form. He lost his confidence. He was the only one, as I say, who didn't play a test match in that famous series victory in Australia where they won with, you know, T. Natarajan and Washington Sundar and all these net bowlers and whatever they were, reserve players. He he was just almost done as a test cricketer. And for him to come back and perform so brilliantly, he's now there. They've got Ashwin and Jadeja, of course. They've got Akshar Patel, by the way, who's not even getting a look in at the moment. Um and then you've got all these young batters coming in. Sarfraz, obviously, on his debut, did so well with those twin 50s. Um, you know, you've got Jaiswal, who's cemented his place now at the top of the order. You've got yeah. Shubman Gill, who's now accustomed to that number three position and, you know, started to score the runs. Valuable half century for him 
in this test match to win the game, 52 not out there. So you've just all that strength in depth. I mean, it's just amazing to see. We knew it was always there, that talent. But when you get injuries, when you get unavailability and you're able to call people up and for them to perform almost immediately, Akash Deep, by the way, I've not even mentioned him. So it's 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 brilliant to see. And, and I think this just shows that India are, they've already, already created this sort of legacy, I suppose, of, you know, being the strongest side at home over an extended period of time of more than a decade. And overall, you've got to say they're the best equipped test side in the world, surely, in all conditions. And we've seen that with India, smooth transitions. A lot of the teams and top teams as well have struggled when it came to transitions. They've had great sides, great players, but just that phase in between where the old guards obviously make way for the young guns, that has been tricky for them. And Sri Lanka being obviously uh, Sri Lanka and West Indies before that examples, pertinent examples to this. In India's case, just a couple of ba- a couple of years back when uh, Rahane and Pujara Kanondrum was haunting India because obviously they'd get those runs sporadically, but there was no consistency there. So Indian fans were left wondering what would happen after them because as far as the IPL is concerned, it does supply India with a lot of options. But then we are talking about a different format altogether. Even in ODIs, for that matter, you do have a lot of options. The bench strength is strong. Hardik Pandey at one point proclaimed that India could uh, win uh, matches against top teams in the world with its uh, third-tier team. But then I can gauge from that reaction what you have to say in response to that. Maybe three years belated because that comment came a long time back. But then yeah. again, test sites, uh, Dhruv Jurel, like we mentioned earlier, he wasn't in the reckoning earlier. It is only recently that his stocks have risen. And there too, back then we didn't know that we'd have to replace Rishabh Pant because barring injuries... You wouldn't imagine a situation where Rishabh Pant would not be featuring for India in Test cricket. And Sarfaraz Khan, in his case, at least he's been churning out runs in domestic cricket consistently for a couple of years now, more than a couple of years rather, three, four years now. Yashasvi Jaiswal, obviously, uh, right from his under-19 days or even before that school cricket days, there was this impression, there was this interest around him that he'd go on to make it big for India. Uh, but then just the way... Some youngsters have been given that responsibility, given those opportunities. They've stepped up. That is so heartening. And uh, Rajat Patidar, he obviously was rated very highly, not because he's been getting those runs for five years. His stocks rose only in that season where Madhya Pradesh went on to win the title. That is 2022 season. But before that, obviously he was contributing, but there was nothing remarkable about it. And then obviously also came that IPL innings in 2022 itself. Uh, unfortunately for him, six innings, just 33 runs. But there's also Devdat Padikal waiting in the wings. He used to open earlier, but then for Karnataka has also donned that middle-order role. Uh, so even if we look beyond the 11 that we are looking at, there are still options. There are options that still exist. So extremely heartening. And uh, that's what uh, obviously any team would want in such scenarios. But then what are you looking at from here now that the series is... Uh, uh, heading towards its culmination and the series has been sealed by India. Do you see the Indian team making any changes in the final test? Well, look, Kale Rahul might well be fit for the fifth test. So if he is, you can imagine him coming in for Batidar, I would probably say at this stage. Um, and then probably just like for like, right? Just just come in at number four and um, just slot in there while Kohli's still unavailable, of course. 
Sarfraz, I'd give him a chance. Look, if Kale Raul, if there's any doubt about his fitness, I've got nothing against Rajat Patidar playing another test match because the series is won now. And you, you want to give people a little bit of a longer rope to prove themselves at this level. So, you know, it's not like he's done really badly. I think he should be dropped. But obviously, if Kale Raul's available and wants to play and the team management obviously would like a 4-1 series victory, it's better than 3-2 or, you know, 3-1 if it ends up in a draw, whatever you want to go all out for the win. So you want your best players playing. Having said that, though, I personally think given the injury situation of recent years with Jasper Bumra, that look, the series is won now. I was against resting him in this one because I thought you need to win the series before you rest him. Now that that's done and it worked out in India's favour, I think there's there's no reason really to to play him in Dharamshala. Yeah, the conditions might suit him a little bit better, but then they'll also suit Akash Deep and Ahmed yeah. Siraj. Play those two seamers again, and the spinners are in such great form that I think you can go in with the same, really the same trio for this Test match. I don't think there's any need to make any changes particularly. Maybe KL comes back mm-hmm. in if you really want to put him back in and, and replace Batidar, but. Apart from that, I mean, well, where do you stand on the Brumra thing, just quickly before we wrap up? Would want to see more of Akash Deep, don't you think so? Second innings didn't provide much of that opportunity. And uh, the way he fared in the first innings, the confidence that he showed as somebody who's so nascent, for whom all of this is so nascent, although he's 27 years of age, so not really a spring chicken, but opportunities came late for him. So maybe more of him, because from India's point of view as well, uh, it is important. Bumra. Uh, he fares well across formats, but uh, there's only as much you can have of him considering the sort of workload that Indian cricketers have and pacers, you can't overstretch them. So just to maybe see more of Akash Deep and uh, uh, again, he's got that pace, he's, he can manage movement up front, how good he can be with reverse swing, all of that, just to gauge from there. How about you? Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. It'd be, it'd be lovely to see more of him and I think Siraj as well, it'd yeah. be good for him to sort of lead that attack in terms of the the seam attack uh, as well, just giving that extra bit of responsibility. I, I think that'll be good. But look, we'll wait and see. Another series down though for India. Another series ticked off at home. It's uh, been a long old run. Seventeen straight wins in home conditions, and uh, they go from strength to strength. More points, of course, in the World Test Championship as well. And uh, we'll see if England can bounce back and and at least. Go home with a little bit more pride as far as the scoreline is concerned and make it 3-2 or if India go on and make it 4-1. That fifth test, of course, in Dharamshala, in uh, the beautiful foothills of the Himalayas as well. I'm sure plenty more English fans uh, will be flocking there. They've had great support through the series as well. And uh, we thank you all for supporting us as well. Thanks for watching live on Facebook, live on YouTube. If you're listening by the podcast feed uh, at uh, Uh, a later time as well thank you remember do hit that like and subscribe button wherever you are listening to us you can leave comments as well ask us any questions you like and we'll try and get around to them in future episodes you can follow us on social media myself Nikesh Raghani and Mega Sinha my co-host follow Cricket 8 across all socials as well and uh, we'll be back with you following that fifth test match goodbye goodbye